When a loved one dies, we wish them to rest in peace. But as survivors, we rarely grant ourselves permission to do the same. My guest Alison Pilling became a widow with two young children at age 36. Find out what she did to overcome her greatest fear of being abandoned to create her empowered life. On this episode of Executor Help. Welcome to the Executor Help Podcast, the show dedicated to help you settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, visit davidedy.com. Now here's your host, David Eady. With me today is Allison Pilling. She is the author of R.I.P. Restoring Inner Peace, a young widow's story of being transformed by love. Allison, thank you for taking the time to be here on the show. I read your book and I think it helps a lot of people. But before we delve into the book, I want to start with your husband, James Rowe. Tell me a little bit about your love story. How did you meet? Yeah, definitely, David. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. And yeah, so James and I, we met in university. We both went to the University of Waterloo and did environmental chemical engineering, which was a fairly small class. And we got together as a couple in second year. So we were maybe 18, 19 years old. It just progressed from there. At that university, we did co-op and all that type of thing, right? So we'd be at school for four months and we'd move away for four months to do our jobs and come back again. So we had that experience of like going out and still living lives and um, growing into ourselves since we were so young. But we also grew together because that was a very influential period in my life in my 20s. So we dated for about eight years. And then uh, we we got married. He proposed. It was a little bit of a surprise. Right. Right. <laughs> I wasn't one of those girls that were pushing for marriage. I'd always thought that I would be with him forever right. and we'd have a family. But yeah, the actual marriage part of it was was an added bonus. So and, and yeah, you ended up and you ended ended up having kids. How many kids do you have? Yeah. So we have two children. Right. So. You have this love story and then something happened in 2011 that changed your family dynamics. What did uh, James confess to you? It was around January 2011. Um, So my daughter, she was our second child. She was getting close to one years old. And I just noticed that James was, was off. There were quite a few things that had changed in our lives. Like we had moved. He'd had a change in his career. We had a young family. And that just throws in a whole bunch of different dynamics. And yeah, one evening he came to me and he confessed that he is an alcoholic. Um, And I'll say I was shocked, right? I had been with this man for, I think at that time, it might've been like 13 years, you know, living together, um, having this family. And I didn't see that. I didn't see the drinks. Um, So I was a little bit surprised, but there was definitely a shift in behavior. I had noticed over the the prior couple of years, he'd really withdrawn himself from the family. Mm -hmm. Um, He would take quite a bit of time kind of to himself. Um, He was having difficulties sleeping and he just had some behaviors that just seemed a little bit um, different, but Again, I didn't physically see him, you know, drinking a, a case of beer or something like that, right? Like right. it wasn't 
a visible thing, the change, the shifts in behaviors and that. So I guess he, he was hiding some of that. I actually thought he might've had some deeper, well, you know, some, some health issues going on. Like we were actually investigating like diabetes and that type of thing because of some of the behaviors. Um, but it turned out it was, it was alcohol. I know you, you, you write in the book that how, how he was hiding it in the, um, in the garage and in the hockey bag, in his hockey bag, equipment bag, and he was be out there drinking. Uh, his drink of choice was vodka, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I ended up finding that out, and honestly, you know, we had we had booze in our house, right. <laughs> but typically, if we sat down for dinner or anything, he'd have like a beer, right, or a glass of wine. It would be one or two type of thing. If we had people over, yeah, sure, he'd have a few, but so would I right? They have a couple drinks at home entertaining or if we went out, but not to the quantity that I realized um, after this confession that he was drinking. Um, Yeah, vodka was his drink of choice. um, And there was no mixing or anything like that. It would be full once I discovered the bottles, because really, who wants to go and look through a stinky hockey bag? Like, I'm not going through the garage looking through hockey bags. I got my own hockey bag. I don't need to be (laughs) going through other ones. So um, I had never even thought, and I was a trusting wife. Like I, I wasn't going to root through his personal stuff, especially the hockey bag. So yeah, he was. So when he, so when he made this confession to you that he was an alcoholic, clearly it was a a a shock. Did you think the family was going to be able to get through this this tough time? I did. Yeah, it was interesting. I actually, at first I was surprised, um, but like I said, it kind of answered some of the questions we had floating around there and even the distance in our relationship. So I actually thought this was the first step into bringing us closer together. Right. Again, like, and again, we we weren't arguing or anything like that when I say our relationship within our marriage. It was just almost like, we started living separate lives because we both had our careers and then there were the young children. Like they were just one and two, they're 14 months apart and we had two dogs and, you know, like you added in, it was just a, a, a blur of obligations we had to take care of at that point in our lives. But yeah, I had thought that maybe this would be since we figured out a source, right, of what was going on, that we'd be able to work together as a team and connect again. Yeah. So five years after he made his confession to you on if you can share with me what uh, happened on February 4th, 2016. Yeah. So on February 4th, 2016, I actually returned home. I was on a business trip to Newark, New Jersey, and it was just a one day thing. So I left at like three in the morning. I got home at 10 or 11 at night because at the time I was living in Guelph. So it was a pretty late night for me. And at the time, James and I had been separated for a little bit because of because of the behaviors, right? I just didn't feel as though there were healthy nurturing behaviors going on in our home with the alcoholism. And again, trying to work on our relationship. 
I didn't want to model that for our children. So we separated. And um, that night when I came home, a couple hours after I got home, I received a call from his sister. And she literally just said, Allison, the police are coming to see you. And she hung up. (laughs) It was something like, Allison, the police are coming to see you. I can't talk about this right now. You know, she sounded very emotional and she just hung up the phone. And like, I received this phone call at almost midnight after being on an airplane, on a job site, you know, all day. I was just like, what is going on? So I actually called a close friend of mine who lived in BC because there was a time differential. So I was like, oh, it's not too late to call them. Um, So I had someone just to kind of be with me at that time of night. Um, And then, yeah, around one o'clock, a police officer showed up um, and told me that they had found James dead and um, in his apartment. So in his condo, the landlord had done a wellness call, which we have done many times. So if you are ever concerned about a loved one or anyone that may be experiencing addiction or alcoholism, you can actually have your local police go into a wellness check. And we had done this many times for James. Um, so the landlord was familiar with um, that that procedure yeah. because, yeah, they had delivered a note and realized that he hadn't picked it up from the mailbox. So, yeah, the police came and told me this information. And then we sat together for a couple hours as as we went through what the next steps could be. Right. And mm. so, so with everything, I'm sorry for your loss. So with everything that you went through, why did you feel that you wanted to write this book? And did you ever think you two would ever write a book? <laughs> this kind of makes me laugh a bit. Um, I never in a million years thought I'd write a book. So my background for almost 15 years of my life is environmental chemical engineering. I was an engineering consultant for 12 years, plus all my academics, my education, I did not even fathom that an engineer would be an author. And so, you know, fast forward a few years, I remember my son, he kept saying, mom, you should write a book. Mom, you should write a book. You have a lot of interesting life experiences. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I only know how to write technical papers or emails and that type of thing. And uh, then I started networking in my new profession as a life coach. And quite a few people were like, you should share your story. You should share your story. Like, why don't you write a book? And again, I was like, no, 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 I don't, I don't write books. I don't even know how. And then the COVID lockdown happened and I had some um, coaching clients that I was seeing in person. And now we're all at home. And we had to take care of our families and figure out how to do work and do everything in the same space. So I had some of those clients decide not to continue their session. So I had a little bit of open space. And that's when the 30-day book writing challenge by Joshua Sprague popped on my Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) It was so random. And I was just like, you know what? I kept seeing it. And I had never Googled or looked for writing a book or an author, anything like that. Um, And I just said, what the heck? I'll give it a try. So I clicked the button. And the next thing you know, um, I entered the challenge. And I had my draft manuscript written in 10 days. 
Oh. <laughs> For somebody, oh, no, I can't write a book. You, you banged it out in barely a week and a half, almost two weeks, less than two weeks. Wow. Okay. So that book was always there. Clearly, your son saw something in you. You just didn't see it. And then you had the signs where it was popping up in your email uh, all the time. So, and you, you did, you did that. You wrote the book based on, you know, what you've gone through is uh, as a tragedy and you're, you're, you're helping others. Who did you write the book for? I'm sure it was cathartic for you, but who did you, who did you write the book for? Yeah. So first and foremost, I guess, I love a challenge. <laughs> I like to see um, what I'm capable of doing. And at the time I was doing a lot of self-discovery work and I was looking into my core beliefs. Cause I went in, when you lose someone, well, for me, my experience, I was like, why did they die? Why am I still here? Why did this remarkable person die? And I'm still here. Like what? <laughs> I just got sort of stuck in there in that in that realm. And I was kind of thinking, like, what's my purpose? You know, what's going on? So I went on this big self-discovery journey. So first and foremost, I wrote the book to challenge myself and to see how this goes. And then the audience I was focused on were people like me. Um, I wanted to share my story with the people that are in love with alcoholics, the people that may love someone that has an addiction or someone that's struggling with their own um, self-worth and addict type behaviors, Mm -hmm. I guess, right? Um, Like, how do you, because at the time, again, I'm an engineer, I'm a fixer. I actually truly believe that I just come in and and I can fix problems. I was trained to to do that. So when I had this experience in my life, it was very eye-opening to me that um, I can only control myself. And the best thing I can do for others is show unconditional love and support. But that has to be still with respecting my own, my own self, my own integrity, my own values. Right. So it was a huge life lesson to learn. And um, in my story, it, it, you know, ended in the way you, you really don't know. I honestly thought that James and I would be together again. I, I never imagined that we would be in, that he would die, to be honest. And you, and you talked about, you know, you know, why are you still here? Why did it happen to him? And you, and you said that was one of the issues, but I know in the book, you say one of your greatest fears is being abandoned, being feeling abandoned every day. You felt that then, do you still feel that? Why did you feel that way? And, and do you still feel that way today? Yeah. So that on my self-discovery journey, that's actually what I found was the root fear to almost my, everything I approach in life. We went right back. I was working with a trans formational life coach myself. Um, and we went right back to my fears of abandonment. And I started to realize that my behaviors and the decisions I was making was to try and protect myself from being abandoned. So I, and this again is all ha- happening on the subconscious level, right? For 
whatever, 37 years of my life. But when I started digging deeper, I was like, oh, that's why I do this, right? Or, oh, you know, and and then just realizing, well, does that actually give the solution I'm looking for, which is that fear of abandonment? So I really had to face that. I ended up discovering that came right from birth. And I went through my whole childhood timeline because I'm actually, I'm adopted. And when I was born, I was left in the hospital for 10 days. Wow. Um, while my adoptive parents came to pick me up. And I had a beautiful childhood. I have a very great um, upbringing and loving parents. But I never even considered that this fear of abandonment could have happened prior to my relationship with James at the time, until I started doing that healing work, that self-discovery work. And I was like, oh, wait a second, this is a pattern. This is a pattern I've been doing my whole life. And I looked at significant milestones or experiences in my life. And a lot of the times it was to protect myself from this fear of abandonment. So I've got to say, David, I I still face that every single day. But mm-hmm. now that I'm actually aware that that's one of my fears, I can do the self-check of like, you know, is this is this really, am I going to experience abandonment if I make a certain decision, right? right so right. yeah, so that was life-changing to even identify that. I went to like a whole nother level of... <laughs> self-discovery or looking into you know how does Allison behave in the world and what is my autopilot (laughs) so now I'm yeah way more self-aware now in your book you write your love when your loved one dies we wish them to rest in peace aka r.i.p as survivors we need to grant ourselves permission to do the same We need to allow ourselves to find peace as we move on forward with our lives after a loss. How can anyone apply RIP? Yeah, so that is one thing. When I entered um, the grief and bereavement world, I guess we'll say very intimately with losing my spouse. You know, I had had prior friends or family members that had passed away and the impact, though at the time was sad and, and carried on, the impact of this relationship and having James died really affected me differently. And one thing I started to notice in this pattern of behavior, like I carried a lot of guilt and shame and regret, especially when I think of how, like, James was sick. Right. I didn't necessarily understand mental health and mental health challenges that well. You know, I was in my 20s. I was in my 30s. You know, they were buzzwords. I didn't know them intimately. I didn't grow up near or around alcoholics in my immediate family. I didn't know what to recognize. So, yeah, I carried a lot of, like I said, shame, guilt, regret, what ifs, that type of thing. And I started to see that pattern in other grieving people I met. And it's almost like my life went on pause. I truly believed for probably about two and a half years that my sole purpose on this earth 
was to raise James Rowe's children. I didn't even call them our children. I said, mm-hmm. I truly thought my that was my my purpose. So until I started doing that self-discovery work, and I started to realize like Allison is her own individual being. <laughs> I'm here with a message, with a purpose. And I started to realize like James's wish for me and for our children is to have full, happy lives. And he would want that with every inch of his soul. I have no doubt about that. So it's almost like I recognize that growing old is a privilege, not a guarantee. So what are you going to do with this experience? And is is that the mindset that you you hope for, that you carry on and, and you try to help other survivors to move on? Yes, definitely. It's like, how do you honor your yourself and your own life in those in those memories? And how do you honor your loved ones moving forward? Um, I would be very surprised if many of our deceased loved ones wish for us to be miserable for the rest of our lives. To be honest, like think about, especially if you've had the experience of being a parent, what do you dedicate a good chunk of your life to, right? It's the health and happiness of your children and leaving that legacy for them to fulfill their dreams that you put a lot of energy into that. So I was like, how can I almost use this, this tragedy or this sadness or experience to help heal myself and others and actually learn to love life a little, like love and, and enjoy life more um, in honor of James. Do you, do you think what's, because when you talk about being in the grief and bereavement area, and I guess, um, you know, with my book, it's the same thing, is that people are uncomfortable talking about death. And when it does come out of the blue, and you know, in your case, where, you know, how you just lost James, and you didn't expect him to lose him that way. Everything seems, I guess, would be, I know when I lost my parents, everything seems upside down. Everything doesn't seem right. Is, is that... Is that something that you're finding when you talk to other people or you're trying to help other people? They just seem sort of lost in a fog and they get sort of lost in their own thoughts. In your case, you were, you know, you're talking about, you know, you you discovered about being um, how to get over being uh, feeling abandoned. And then also the tips that you help people with survivor is, is it, is it the the concept of death and losing somebody is where people get lost and and, uh, don't know where to go? I, yeah, many people find death to be a, very awkward topic definitely actually becoming at peace with the life cycle and and death has been a huge growth experience for myself and some of that is tapping into that whole belief or or experience of like i can only control myself how can i provide unconditional love and support to others as well on this journey and um, realizing that, you know, our lives do have an end at a certain point. So one of the things I've been involved with is I host a death cafe here in my local area. And we actually are, we meet once a month. Is that what it's called? Is that what it's called? Death cafe? 
It's called Death Cafe. Yeah, it's okay. an international movement. So there's deathcafe.com. Okay. <laughs> I think it originated in the UK. Okay. Um, and I host the Death Cafe Quinty here in my local region. And it literally is it just an open space to speak about anything related to death and dying. Um, because a lot of the times we have curiosities, we have questions. Um, the people who attend are caregivers. Some people, it's their own death that they've either faced or are facing if they're ill. Um, some people are widowed, uh, frontline workers, people that that work or like end of life care. Um, those are the types of people that have joined our conversations and literally, you know, kind of similar to what you said, like when you're with family members and you're sitting around the dinner table and you just like speak about someone who has died or about maybe your own death, like you want to talk about preparing your will or something like that, like you can really stop the conversation and, you know, the, the mood in the room so quickly. So what this cafe, this event does is it creates a space where people can come with those curiosities to share whatever's on their heart and mind. And I'll be honest, most of the time, we talk about how we want to live our lives, how these experiences have either enriched our lives or giving us, you know, lessons learned to carry forward. So I've had quite a few people say, oh, you're morbid. You know, like when I first started advertising the Death Cafe here, I had some pretty interesting comments on social media. Oh, it's quite the branding, <laughs> Death Cafe. It's not really something to say, you know what, I think I want to go hang out there, have maybe a... <laughs> A cappuccino at the death cafe you are going to get sort of a side look but i i get it it, it the, the concept and what you're doing um and you're helping people transform you know not being afraid to have those conversations and that's where a lot of families or individuals break down when it comes to talking about uh about death or you know planning for their death and it's great uh having you know having a coffee at the death cafe does make a lot of sense yeah. And like it's funny because some people I find are like nervous to mention the name of your deceased loved one, right? They, they feel they're going to upset you or they'll shift the mood of, <laughs> of whatever's going on at the moment, whether it's, uh, you know, a social engagement, you know, you guys are all having dinner, you're at a party or something like that. I realize like, Initially, there were quite a few people reaching out and um, checking in and that type of thing. And as the years go by, it gets very quiet. It gets very quiet. And I will say, when I released the expectation that grief had a, a timeline or a date, like, I'll just get over it. <laughs> and I just recognize that grief is part of my life now. Um, it comes in waves. You know, I'm not sad every day or anything like that. But yeah, I have moments, you know, I'll see something or hear a song or, or anything like that, that might trigger a memory of, of any of the people in my life. Right. It's when you say about grief, and it's party life. Every and day, um, I just embrace it. The, the, a lot of people make it about them, that, you know, you're grieving, it's been enough time, okay, get over it, until it actually is it actually hits them and then they understand where you're coming from and again that comes back to people being uncomfortable talking about the the the, the subject before i let you go i need to ask you the question how did you come up with 
and create Transform by Love, the four-step action plan. And what is it? Yeah. Okay. So again, I mentioned I'm an I'm an engineer. <laughs> yes. um, I'm not practicing right now, but my mind thinks in steps. Is that before? I know our li- the listeners can't see, but is that the engineering ring you've got on your little finger? Yes. Yeah. Of course. Yes. <laughs> you may not be practicing, but you love to show that ring. Okay. Go ahead. Continue. <laughs> Oh, I'm still a member of the PEO. I'm still a licensed engineer. I have a lot of engineering (laughs) friends. Okay, I get it. All right, go ahead. Yeah, so, but my mind thinks in steps. It thinks in processes. Like, I did chemical engineering for for many, many years. So when I came up with the Transform by Love four-step action plan, it's to help people who are in difficult decision-making situations to try and, like, tap in to their inner emotions, their inner feelings, and make a decision so that they will experience, well, hopefully without guilt or regret. So I found out that a lot of the times we make our decisions based on our emotions, and then we justify with logic. So for the four-step action plan, Transform by Love, the L stands for look inward, The O is for observe your feelings. The V is for validate your options. And E is taking your empowered action. So one of the examples I use over, you know, the last couple of years, my dad was in the hospital and he was quite sick. Um, So if I use this process, you know, at first I look and what's my greatest fear? My greatest fear is that my dad could die. And that was a true reality that we were facing. He was in the hospital for almost eight weeks before we were able to transfer him to respite. So then I go to, oh, right. Observe my feelings. So what's running through here? Like if my father dies, you know, again, that fear of abandonment, (laughs) who will take care of my mom? You know, all of these stories start, start going through. So then I look at, okay, validate my options. So in this situation, if my greatest fear was to happen, what would I have wished I I did today? So my different options were, you know, give him a call, go visit him, call my mom, support my mom, or speak to any family members. So there's all these different options that I actually have control over. And then I move to step E, the empowered action. I can select one that fits for that day. And at that time, I know like I'm addressing my feelings and I feel better when I'm in in motion. When I'm doing something, I feel like I'm contributing to, to my family and and for myself. That's why I created this action plan. It's sort of to help people work through or identify what are the emotions they're feeling in a difficult situation. And then actually looking at what do you have control over? What are some of your choices where you can take empowered action and know that you step forward for yourself and your loved ones in that in that difficult situation. Before I let you go, I'd like to know how's your family doing? How are the kids doing? How are you doing after uh, everything you've gone through? Yeah, yeah, we are doing well. Thank you. Yeah, we moved back to my hometown, so we're in Belleville, Ontario now, and uh, to be closer to my parents. I was just and, in Belleville uh, not too long ago. We went to Prince Edward County wine tasting, we, but we stayed in Belleville. Nice. Oh, beautiful. 
Yeah, it's there's some great places over there and the beaches and that are yeah. amazing. So yeah, um, we're back here. We're just, you know, I left my engineering career and I focused on becoming, uh, well, I actually focused on my family and the grieving journey because I'll be honest, at first we weren't doing that great. It probably took us about two and a half years to really start feeling a little more settled in our lives with all the changes we experienced. How, how, old, how old were the kids? They, um, at the time James died, they were five and six and they are 12 and 13 now. Okay. Yeah. They're in grade seven and eight and they're, you know, back in school, I actually homeschooled them for a bit. Um, when we first were doing all the moving around and stuff, but yeah, they're back in school. They have friends. Belleville's a great town to have access to activities and uh, we're close to the grandparents and yeah. And I'm engaged. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. So, Thank you. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to add to let people know about why you did what you did and how you see your life going forward? And, and clearly uh, now being engaged, you, you, you haven't forgotten the past, but you've moved on to create a, a better future for you and your, your, your kids. Is there anything you want to add? Okay, yeah, happy. I guess. You're happy and in love. Okay, we can end it right there. <laughs> I was like, that's a very open-ended question. Um, I've got a lot of things in the works. There's a lot of things I want to do. I think even just being one of those those people that are open to having these conversations in, in the grief world has really provided support for a lot of people. Um, I've So many people have reached out and have been supportive. So I just want to show gratitude and appreciation to my community and, you know, as long as I, I will just dedicate myself to continuing to working on, you know, opening my heart and sharing my story so that, you know, whoever needs to hear it will hear it. So at the time, I'm, you know, I'm creating some online challenges and courses and I do my one-to-one -one coaching and I host my death cafe and I may even have another book in the works. Look at you. <laughs> now, now, look at you bagging out the next book. All right. So yeah. where, you, you talked about your courses and, and, and your coaching. Where can people find you? Yeah. So right now, the best place to find me would be um, I'm really developing my YouTube channel. So lots of life coaching tips and that on there. I also to talk about the death cafe on there the other probably good place would be instagram that's okay. allison coaches and your yeah. website and, is called and your website url is yep so it's allisoncoaches.com and specifically for the book would be backslash book okay allison coach allisoncoaching.com and that's where they'll find allison pilling the author of r.i.p restoring inner peace a young widow's story of being transformed by love Allison, thank you very much for taking the time today. You, you've got a great story and, you know, you went through a dark time and now you clearly have got a whole new bright future going ahead. And I wish nothing but the best for you and your, your kids going forward. And I want to thank you again for being here on the Executor Help podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the Executor Help podcast. For more details, visit davidedy.com or follow David on Facebook, LinkedIn or Twitter. 